0: Hello, welcome to the Performance Cycling Podcast. This is Episode Nine. I'm here with Todd. Hey everyone, welcome. Uh, we're gonna start with a quick question uh, for Todd. I want to ask you, what's your favorite fruit?
1: Favorite fruit? Favorite fruit overall, or like favorite fruit to eat on a ride?
0: No, favorite fruit.
1: Just, just straight up. Mhm. All right, I'm a big fan of strawberries. Whoa. Seasonal, kind of yep. seasonal fruit, and, but yeah, can't can't pass a good strawberry up. And then my second. Uh, I have a peach tree in my yard, so like I'm keeping an eye on them right now.
0: And then, what was going to be your answer for on a ride?
1: Banana. Well, okay, that's 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 not even. uh, I like. I didn't
0: know if you had like a secret
1: uh, Uh, second uh, answer. Although I will say uh, a date. Yeah, dates are good. Right, Mm -hmm. they pack nicely. Uh,
0: I go with raspberries if I can pick anything, especially in season. Dates are really good. You can't only eat them because they're like, I think they're too high fructose if you're looking at the carbohydrate ratios, but they can be really solid for sure. Definitely
1: tasty little treat. That is nice.
0: The pro tip is um, put them in flour. Basically, like you take out your bag of flour and you just drop them in Uh and then it coats and then you don't have to put them in a bag or anything. You just drop them right in your...
1: Mm -hmm. um,
0: Clever. Okay. Yeah, I I was told that and then they don't clump together or anything.
1: Okay, so. all right, so that's it's interesting, because my, my question for you okay. is, what's your favorite, and we may have already gotten the answer, but what's your favorite natural food, so like not a cliff bar or a gel or anything, but thing that you would go to on a, on a ride?
0: Hmm, Um. I don't really, I don't eat natural stuff on rides, I have a really hard time eating food at all, so... Uh, I stick to gels, blocks, um, maybe pro bars. If we're okay. gonna drop a name, but um, if I if it had to be natural, it would be dates. Okay, yeah. that's your that's your go-to. Uh, although, like something like a granola bar, if that counts as natural, um, can be pretty okay. tasty as well. Fair enough. Like chewy bars. Okay. All right. <laughs> the equivalent of like a kid snack.
1: You know, nothing, nothing
0: wrong with that. Well, what in the in the Phil Guyman book they talked about how Andrew Tolanski likes the kids Cliff Bars, and uh, Phil had to go back and get them because he didn't want to eat the regular Cliff Bars, and so he had to like on a climb he had to go back to the car and get some Z Bars for Andrew to bike him back up to him. <laughs>
1: hey, whatever, whatever keeps you going. Yeah, of
0: the day. well, top pros are usually pretty particular about stuff. Yeah, yeah. When you you know what works
1: for your stomach. So.
0: It's true. So our topics today are um, altitude, just yes. generically. I, um, I don't know that much about this, so um, this is Todd's portion, and then I'm going to talk about some race tactics for crits and road races.
1: All right, this is this is diverse. I guess I'll, I'll yeah. hop in with altitude. Yep. All right, so so first thing I want to throw out there is not going to talk about any of the... Serious things that happen when you go up to altitude, uh, for a couple of reasons. One, I know it's like beyond the scope of our podcast, but two, cycling very rarely takes place at these really high altitudes, where you have the things like uh, acute mountain sickness or high altitude pulmonary edema, high altitude cerebral edema. Those are sort of the serious medical conditions, and those oftentimes those are like high high mountain climbing. So. 15,000 feet or beyond in most cases. You can see it at lower altitudes, but oftentimes it's really, really high elevation, right? I think okay. Mount Evans is the highest paved road in the U.S., if I'm not mistaken, and it's a little above 14,000 feet. And to my knowledge, the highest mountain bike legal trail um, is White Mountain in Southern California area outside of Mammoth. And again, that's like a little above 14,000 feet. So you're you're right on that edge where those things will start to happen, but... The majority of things that we do, like in bike racing, right? If you look at the, the grand tours, they don't get to those types of altitudes, right?
0: They're, they're like 2,000 meters, I think, or 2,200 meters. Yeah, the max.
1: right. You're, you're seldom seeing those really, really high altitudes. I mean, even Tour California, right, was in in Tahoe on Mount Baldy, and still only on like 7,000 foot sort of elevations. So,
0: I remember when, um I was 16, I was climbing Mount Baldy in Philmont. Hmm. Um, and you had to go up this big scree pile, so like medium-sized rocks. And we're all just sort of like clam, like just absolutely wiped, um, you know, a bunch of 16-year-old kids. But um, that was my first experience of like, oh, yeah, the air is definitely thinner
1: up here. Yeah, um, and it's certainly certainly a game changer when it comes to performance and how much work you can do, right, how much mm-hmm. you can put out. Um, for But so we'll, we'll jump in, we'll talk about that a little bit and try to understand what's limiting us, you know, what happens when we adapt what our body does both short and long-term, uh, and then like, maybe what are some hacks that we can do uh, to improve our performance in the short-term um, if we get to altitude or if we are racing at altitude. Okay. All right, so so first thing, <clears throat> the air is always 21% oxygen, more or less. Um, so like when you go up to altitude, there's not less oxygen, it's still 21%. Now, the air pressure is less, so it feels like there's less because when we, uh, when we breathe and we get to get oxygen from the atmosphere into our lungs and then from our lungs into our blood, it's about a pressure gradient. And okay. And the atmospheric pressure is less, you have less pressure gradient to diffuse the blood, the, the oxygen across mm-hmm. into the blood. So well, it's, not, it's not like you go up to the top of Mount Everest and all of a sudden it's you know, 10% oxygen or something. It's just the atmospheric pressure. Is fifty percent what it is at sea level or thereabouts?
0: Because the the air is like a homogeneous mixture, so yep. it's just the the pressure on the air rather than the concentrations.
1: Right, and okay. like we're we're under a column of air, mm-hmm. right? and when you're at twenty nine thousand feet, it's that much less column. of a column. Yeah, compared to at sea level.
0: That's interesting.
1: So it's a little your little trivia factoid.
0: Yeah, drop that on your friends. Yeah.
1: Um, so and I know we talked about um, you know. Pulse oximetry before and like what's your oxygen concentration in the mm-hmm. blood? And I, I think I made this one off comment like yeah go go do your real heart intervals and with the pulse oximeter on that number is not going to change a whole lot. Yeah. And right, so it, for fifth person at sea level, you know it's it's above ninety seven, it's probably closer to a hundred, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when you start to go up to elevation, five thousand, seven thousand feet.
0: And so what is this exactly again?
1: The <clears throat> so, so it's a measure of the oxygen saturation. Of the blood cells. Right. So how much okay. oxygen do they have relative to their carrying capacity? Okay. So we, we walk around at sea level, pretty much topped off even when we're doing
0: our pre- blood in- is like packed full of
1: oxygen yep. all the time. Yep. And mm-hmm. even when we do pretty intense exercise, we're not actually using a ton of it. Right? We're still there's still a pretty big reserve. Okay. Okay. Now when we go up to altitudes, so like five to seven thousand feet, that's something that we would commonly see in the US. Like right? Colorado. So uh, Colorado certainly like Denver is 5,000 feet. You know, if you go up to Lake Tahoe here in California, you're in that range. Um, I think there's the, the famous uh, century in California is the death ride, and it has some passes that are, I believe, over 8,000 feet. That's in the Lake okay. Tahoe area. So, you know, you're in this range. Um, so now you're talking about resting levels. You could be 92, 93, you know, maybe maybe 95 and fitter individuals, okay? And so that's, that's, a, that's a change, right? That's a, yeah. that's a big job. So I think you'd be hard-pressed to do even some really hard intervals at sea level and get down to the, that type of a number. Okay. okay. Then if you go, like I said, in Mount Evans, um, you know, White Mountain, this mountain biking, you might be below 90, right? And so below 90, again, not something that healthy individuals is going to see at sea level. Um, somebody with lung disease, right? Like a chronic smoker, with emphysema that type of person might see a below 90 level at sea level. Okay. Okay, just for, for reference, right, and if you've seen or known or worked with somebody that has that type of condition, they're working pretty hard to do the basics at sea level. So now you can start to understand, when, you, when we get up to altitude, yeah, we're, we're working. Uh, and I, I've climbed up right now on, on a mountain bike, and it's just like, yeah, you get to 14,000 feet, you're pedaling, you're, you feel like you're working really hard, and you're, you're not making a whole lot of progress. Yep. So, Okay, so there's two, two ways to think about altitude. There's what happens if, like, you drop me on top of the mountain right now, and what does my body try to do to compensate? And there's what happens if I have a little more time, right, I'm preparing for that event that's going to happen to altitude, and I can get there in advance and allow my body to get used to the altitude and make some adjustments, okay? okay? So short-term, easy things, uh, we increase our respiration rate, right? Because our, our sensors are, for you and me, dialed into sea level, And so we get up there and all of a sudden, well, there's not as much oxygen coming in, right? So Mm -hmm. our body's default response is, well, if there's not as much oxygen available, I'm going to breathe faster, right? So I can get more oxygen in. That's fine. Um, Except that then we get rid of all our CO2, okay? Because we're kind of borderline hyperventilating. Right, not, not by definition but it certainly increased respiration rate so you're, I mean you're pushing out co2
0: <laughs> yep. every time you breathe out so yep. that you can breathe in more more
1: oxygen yep and it's like a cycle right because you're not getting the oxygen that you expect every time so you keep you keep building on this okay all right so what happens with that is you keep doing this and then um, you do this nifty thing where you're gonna try to balance out so when you get rid of that, CO2, it actually increases the pH of your blood, and pH is tightly regulated. Okay. So CO2 is relatively um, basic, okay. or really... Dissolved so, CO2. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So then what you do is your kidneys take over, and you, you'll you find out when you get L2-Dup a lot. Uh, this is your kidneys trying to balance your blood pH by getting rid of any excess bicarbonate. So you're trying to balance that out. So like first thing, you start breathing faster, try to get oxygen, <clears throat> then you start to get a little basic. So then you dump your bicarbonate through your urine to balance out your pH again. Okay. So that's your kind of acute things. Um, other things you'll see right as your heart rate may go up a little bit as you get to altitude. You know, You're not getting as much oxygen, so you have to circulate the blood a little bit faster to get the needs in the periphery. Um, and then, you know, think the obvious things, you're going to see a performance decrease, right? Uh, the rule of thumb is about 3% per 1,000 feet. Not like the first couple, of like 4,000, 5,000, you can start counting there.
0: Okay, so at 5,000 feet, you're saying 15%? No,
1: I'd say you start counting it. Like, oh, okay. like you got to omit the first probably three to 4,000 feet. Okay. <clears throat> and then, right, It's like you've climbed some of the hills here, Right. So by the time you get to the top of Highway Nine, you're not ten percent slower.
0: I mean, if you want to go into this, I uh, I did find a paper that said that the VO2 max of athletes did decrease per, like linearly relative mm-hmm. to their uh, the altitude that they were at, and it was noticeable down to about a thousand feet. Um, so VO2 max is not your threshold. Sure. Um, so maybe your threshold might not change um, and there's a lot of factors that go into what your threshold value is, but um, I had this argument with someone and I'm glad I found this paper because your VO2 max does drop even at a thousand feet, two thousand feet, um, but, you know, like your your statements are probably more um, experiment based, you know, you see people go out, they do their 20 minute effort at different heights and, you know, this is... We just don't notice a drop off in power until
1: we get to 5,000 feet. Is that yeah. correct? And I think I think you're like four or 5,000 is where you start to really see it. And there's another piece of this too, right? <clears throat> there's power and there's like performance velocity, right? Because as you get up higher, that air is thinner. So you can actually travel faster. Mm. So this is like a whole interesting thing, right? About our records in Mexico City. Yeah,
0: because that's how 7,000 feet in Mexico yeah, City? Yeah, thereabouts. Yeah.
1: Okay. So it's less air resistance, but then you have a detriment to performance. And right? it's mm-hmm. so like, how do you do the calculus to balance that out? And you know, certainly for the sprinting events, it's a it's a no brainer. Right? It's short. It's not really taxing the aerobic system. And it's right? mostly like dissolved it. oxygen that's already in your body.
0: Yeah. For the effort.
1: And it's not well. It's a lot of it is not um, stressing the oxidative system, right? Like if it's. Uh, a short sprint it's creating phosphate primarily right so you don't need the oxidative component of it is not as important okay um, and so you, you'll see that especially in um, like track track and field okay uh, for the hundred meter for example yeah like if you graph people's personal bests that sea level versus that altitude hands down it's going to be faster at altitude yeah and that, and that tapers off over time
0: the only thing less aerodynamic than a cyclist is a runner
1: right um, I mean, so. especially right, as a sprinter. Probably
0: right. Yeah, um, so you're looking at slow. you're looking at like a big performance boost because that's such a detriment to your speed. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Um, so interesting factoid: the Olympic record for the long jump was set in the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City, and it still stands. The Olympic yeah. record. The world record is slightly like a couple inches longer. Okay. But so we're talking about 50 year old record. Yeah. Uh, that's yeah. Altitude. So L2, pretty strong. powerful for yeah. that short, right? Like. How important is aerodynamics in long jump? Apparently, quite a bit, but it's all power, right? So mm-hmm. Springing off that board, sprinting up. To speed, yeah, it's like a 12-second event, right? right? It's super yeah. short. So anyhow, total, total aside, but random, <laughs> random trivia that I thought I would throw in there. Um, so okay, so you, you do this compensation. Uh, so also, like, when you get to altitude, you probably feel a little dehydrated. One, it tends to be less humid, but also, like, you're peeing a lot. Okay. to balance out your acid-base balance um, so sometimes you do short-term see a reduction in blood flow uh, which then leads to, as you exercise an increase in heart rate because you're not pumping as much blood there's not okay. as much oxygen available in that blood so like this is kind of seems kind of problematic yeah like okay i, I can i can start to see where this performance detriment comes in mm-hmm. right? less oxygen less blood volume these are all the things that i trained to higher improve. improve higher mm-hmm. heart rate more difficult to do the work, yeah. So you can can sort of see how all these pieces connect.
0: Okay, but it's generally cooler,
1: so there's... there's It is generally cooler, yeah, and it's generally drier, right, so you get better evaporative cooling. Okay. So that that may help you. Um, But, yes. So now, longer term. So short term, we do all these sort of, like, fluid-based things to adapt, Mm -hmm. uh, and that helps to balance our pH. And this is, I just took a
0: flight to Denver sort of thing.
1: Yeah, right, I'm hanging out in Denver, or... uh, What's the one, there's a couple in South America that like, airports are super high.
0: Um,
1: uh, I want to say like in Colombia or Peru. Like I would the, say Peru. The airports are like super high. Um, okay. So you're like, get out know, the airplane at 10,000 feet. You know, mm. Some people have issues with that. Um, anyhow, so again, total aside. So I think that the most interesting thing for me about this is so many of the adaptations when we talk about the long term aren't actually like blood-based they're actually like very much cellular based so like yes we do know that we increase our blood cell count long-term exposure to altitude right the the lack of oxygen stimulates the production of EPO in the body that stimulates the creation of new blood cells red blood cells increasing our oxygen carrying capacity
0: right so so EPO is the is the hormone in our body that says produce more red blood cells. Correct. And red, bl- red blood cell density in our blood is a good indicator of oxygen. performance. Well,
1: uh, oxygen carrying ability. Okay. Right. Like, just because you have a really high red blood cell count doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to perform well. Because that, that gets the oxygen from the atmosphere into the blood and then allows it to be ready to be handed off to the muscles. Okay. The muscles still have to do something. So there's some other them.
0: things in the chain that if they're not optimized.
1: Right. And so that's why I think this is so interesting about the long-term adaptations to altitude, because so a lot of those happen on that side, right? And I think the intuitive thing is like, oh well, if red blood cells carry oxygen, make more red blood cells, and then you're all good. Okay. And actually, there's a lot of stuff that happens cellular level. So one.
0: Um, well, so- sorry, I, I want to stop you. Yes. Um, cellular. <laughs> this whole uh, EPO red blood cell count thing. This is um, back to hematocrit levels, is yes. that correct? The, and These
1: are all related concepts.
0: So in the early 2000s, when they couldn't um, test for EPO directly in the blood, oh. they had a maximum hematocrit level. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is like, we, we have a natural hematocrit level in like the mid 40s, generally?
1: Depending yeah, on the person, right? It <laughs> varies, male versus female tends to be a little bit lower than male.
0: So the hematocrit level is The percent of your blood that is red blood cells. Yeah,
1: basically.
0: Um, So, you know, some basically uh, my understanding of this is as you train, you like say you're training at threshold, Mm -hmm. you've now spent like an hour throughout your workout in this very highly oxygen depleted state, and that gives a similar EPO. Stimulus. Um, stimulus. Mm-hmm. And, and then you, you now have more EPO in your body and you produce more red blood cells. Um, this is like the point, some of the point of doing like sweet spot training, threshold training is a spike in EPO so that you get more mm-hmm. red blood cells.
1: Yes. Yes. You want, right? you, 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 part of your training is to increase red blood cell volume, but like there's a, a limit or there's an individual range more or less. That your okay. body's going to be okay with and is going to you know, like you're going to have some peak right it's probably somewhat genetically determined okay of how high you can get that number um, beyond that then you have synthetic means or you may be able to push close to that number by like how you train train altitude sleep health to any of those other ways you can do it okay um, so so you do that that's great um you also increase the number of capillaries that are available, so you can better distribute those red blood cells okay. to the muscles, which is pretty interesting. Um, but then the thing I find so fascinating, and it, it also goes along with our training, right? So when we train at these aerobic levels, uh, we also think about increasing the efficiency and the volume um, of mitochondria. All right? So right, those are cellular engines for lack of a better term, right, and the muscle. So chronic exposure to altitude increases the number of mitochondria, so this is good. You have more, more little components in your cell that can um, metabolize that oxygen and your carbohydrates to produce energy. You have, they get larger in, in size, which is great. Um, and you also get more of the enzymes that you need to fuel that process. Right. So now it's like basically less resistance to getting through all the processes, right? So that's what I was talking about is part of it is, well, let's get the oxygen from the atmosphere into the blood and deliver it to the muscle. But if the muscle can't do anything with it, then well, it's not terribly useful. Mm-hmm. So that chronic exposure to altitude also helps on the muscle end, right? It helps the muscle be able to better process that oxygen, okay. um, which I think is fascinating that that there's so much of the change happens on that level as opposed to just well it doesn't make more more red blood cells and solve the problem Mm -hmm. that way so the the body really takes um, kind of both ends into account and adapts both parts of the process so like yes there's less oxygen available so i'm going to make you more efficient in how you handle oxygen i'm going to help you get some Mm -hmm. more but i'm also going to make you more efficient in what you can do with that oxygen that's coming in
0: which makes sense that um you were saying like you know EPO production is on the body level, and then this um, mitochondrial density and efficiency is on the cellular level. So you know your body's reacting to the lower oxygen levels, but so are the individual cells mm-hmm.
1: that aren't getting as much oxygen as they'd like. Yep, exactly. So I think that's that's pretty neat. Um, so those are kind of like very high level like what are the adaptations that happen versus like very short term versus um, very long term yeah, with exposure. Like long term, I'm talking on, on the order of weeks, like two, three weeks um, versus like short term, I'm talking like days, like, a day, two days. Like, you show up in Denver and you're gonna go raise tomorrow. This, <laughs> this is what's happening. Right? You're gonna spend a lot of time in the toilet because you're, <laughs> you're compensating. Uh, so, yeah, I think that's, that's interesting. Uh, so, then the question, of course, is like, well, what do I do? Uh, this in the short term I like we'll have to go racing like if we have to go racing like taco tomorrow what are we gonna do about it right if we have no other Say you
0: accidentally forgot that you were racing at altitude tomorrow
1: yeah
0: how do you how- how, how, how oh do, crap what do I do
1: um, hope for the best now so there is some evidence that uh, one of your favorite supplements may come in handy so talk about beetroot juice
0: yeah here. beet juice
1: uh, <laughs> and it's so i've seen different studies uh, the two that i looked at so one was in favor of the effectiveness and one was against uh, they were different links from what i could tell there they were somewhat trained cyclists so vo2 max is on the order of 55 to 60. so not like okay. crazy elite level athletes but like not a couch potato mm-hmm. either yep. and they did do time trial tests. Uh, they were short, though. They're on the like order of 10 to 15 kilometers. Um, so one in a small, small sample. I think the the sum of the two studies was 20 individuals they tested. Okay. I think one was 11, one was nine. Uh, so one found a benefit in favor, and one was against. Um, now that was a single. Did it find a
0: negative correlation, or did it find no
1: correlation? By what do you mean by against? So no, no effect, no okay. change, right?
0: The so, null hypothesis
1: yeah okay. exactly so neutral to better and it's it's beat so it's not terrible for you this is also one small dose that they tested right so okay. this is this is literally the I forgot I was racing altitude what what can I do mm. right now I, I can take some beetroot juice and,
0: and if cool. you are a beetroot juice fan you should learn what your dose is that doesn't give you a stomach ache um, okay. and the higher the better but please don't get a stomach ache before you race because that's like the worst thing that can happen.
1: And don't, uh, you know, we also think, I think talked about baking soda, loading. Yeah. Altitude is not the time to do that. right? Your, your body's actually actively trying to get rid of that to balance your. So your body becomes more basic at altitude, is that Because pretty? of the. Uh, acutely, because of right. the short term increase in respiration.
0: Which gets rid of the CO2.
1: Which gets rid of the CO2, which then makes you want mm-hmm. to get rid of the bicarbonate. So that's probably not a good time to yeah.
0: Don't do yeah, baking soda,
1: but uh, maybe do maybe maybe do beetroot juice. Um, I've also seen some longer term studies where they have like a, a beetroot juice loading protocol, where you, hmm. again this requires that you are cognizant of your upcoming altitude race and start you know drinking it like I think it was like a week that they drank it and they had pretty good results on that. Okay. So. Perhaps if you have a little more time, you may consider consuming beetroot juice for a prolonged period of time to, to increase the nitrates in the body. Um, and of course, this brings us to my, let say, my favorite study, but just an interesting study uh, okay. on the topic. And how did I how did I had to learn about this? Um, originally, it was when I was in exercise phys class. Um, they were doing a study at the VA. About this topic, and so, like, my professor was involved somehow, and so it just came up when we were talking about altitude. Okay. Um, so, the, the punchline here is: vasodilation is the theme. Um, turns out that uh, Viagra is actually a fairly good uh, way to counteract your um, performance detriment at altitude. It's similar to beetroot juice, right? And it's a, a vasodilator. Basically, okay. So, well, the nitrate can be reduced, or vasodilators, and the, the action of Viagra is, is vasodilation. So it turns out that helps, and I know you're saying, like, but, but why would I do that? <laughs> uh, well, one, you can't do it in cycling, but if you think a little bit bigger picture, like, cyclists are not the only people who need to exercise at altitude. Um, so like military applications, right, like you need to go fight mm-hmm. a war in the mountains, you need to carry a big heavy pack, you probably still need to move fairly quickly. So you would want to know, like how do I keep my troops moving efficiently, able to maintain a high workload yeah. at altitude if they have to go there tomorrow? You you test these things, right? And then, okay, so... I, so that's a total aside, it's kind of random, it's interesting though.
0: So if you're like, man, fingers crossed, I don't get uh, dope tested. <sighs> So, because Viagra is definitely on the yeah. um, on the banned substance list from USADA and WADA, and I remember it's also like one of the most searched on uh, Global DRO, which is the recommended um, site that they have for checking what What's substances are banned. Um, and yeah, it's, it, I know it's one of the most searched ones, and it's definitely illegal. It's definitely performance enhancing. Um,
1: I'll, I'm all I'm gonna say is if you're if you're going down that path. It's gonna be real embarrassing to try to explain that one.
0: Yeah, I think that like, you know, it's it's not in the spirit of bike racing anyway. Um, you know, a lot of people who are caught doping are, um, unfortunately, you know, people who are like, I have to go work, you know, on the farm if I don't get a sure. cycling contract, sure. and they get put in a pretty sticky situation. But if you are a weekend racer. Um, don't come on, guys.
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't think You know, to it's get like it it's far. not in the
0: spirit of the. But that that is interesting, and I think that, you know, what what if you're doing a fondo, who cares? Or um, you you always get your butt kicked by your friends, and you want to keep
1: up next time. I mean, I guess I'd feel a little bit better about myself, like if we were racing each other, and you're we like, ah, oh, you kicked my ass today, and like, oh, I took beetroot juice. I feel a little bit better admitting that. I'm like, well, so I got this prescription. Yeah, that's funny. Uh, Just just saying. Uh Or like, I just stuffed myself with beets for the last three days. Yeah. (laughs) It's probably also healthier to consume beets, I'm sure, right? Antioxidants. So there's many other benefits to consuming beet products.
0: And so then, um, like we've said before about supplements, they probably don't uh, layer on each other Um, so you you can't take viagra and beet juice and expect a double
1: effect Um, most most likely not yeah i mean i guess there's no
0: studies yet but
1: no but so if you figure it's a vasodilator right and i'm sure you we've all had that feeling where at some point we go to get up and like oh i just stood up too fast i feel a little dizzy and lightheaded Mm -hmm. and part of that is because your vessels didn't constrict enough to send the blood up to your brain okay so so constriction, it's opposite dilation of course so if you dilate all your vessels enough you don't get blood up to the brain hmm. which is a bigger problem yeah so yeah i mean if you over vasodilated everything would just go to the lowest point
0: okay so yeah eventually the gains turn into the into yeah. detriment
1: so
0: that's the basic. I don't know if you want to dig. Um, yeah, so I, I actually mm-hmm. um, had the opportunity to buy an altitude tent last, I think, four or five months ago. And I did actually do a lot of research to make sure that I wasn't buying uh, snake oil. And uh, I think that the research on altitude tents is pretty mixed. So um, there are studies that say that, you know, Olympic athletes got three to four percent more aerobic capacity after using Mm -hmm. it and not even you know like i think one study was like 12 hours a day one was nine hours a day um you know basically the you know if you're if you're a high level athlete you're going to be sleeping nine hours a day anyway so it's just when you sleep basically um and some of those studies showed good results other ones didn't and then some reviews said well it looks like some athletes are responders and some athletes are Mm non-responders Um, and it looked like one paper had said that some athletes, they speculated that some athletes were responders because they had the micronutrients necessary for the stimulus to occur.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Basically, yeah. uh, they said well,
1: For the adaptation to occur, right? The stimulus is yeah, there. That was the, tab- the adaptation. But then the adaptation is whatever cellular processes changed.
0: Right. So, the, um, you know, if you are looking for altitude adaptations, you need to make sure you have enough iron in your diet whether that's through a supplement or uh, uh, through your food you also need enough b12 and b9 B9 is um, folate or folic acid uh, both I think so b12 if you're a vegetarian or a vegan cyclist you're not gonna you're gonna need to supplement with b12 because that's mostly a meat-based uh, item but b9 I was under the impression if you ate like a oh. modest amount of bread,
1: yeah, it's uh, it's in all our, our flour. It's, it's it helps prevent um, birth two, or neural tube defects, birth defects. Okay. So it's yeah, it's just one of the yeah. things we decided as a country. Kind we, of like we buy all the bread.
0: Okay, uh,
1: so all, all the flour. Yeah.
0: yeah, so folic acid is probably you shouldn't be concerned about that, but make sure that if you want to get altitude stimulation, you have enough B twelve and iron. And um, generically on this topic, uh, I found the papers that said, you know, it was dietitians who said all endurance athletes should be supplementing with 65 to 100
1: milligrams of iron a day. That's it. Um, well, there's there's many forms of iron too, which makes
0: it yeah. So that was what's was so difficult about right. it was um, what is the assumed absorption rate of this? Obviously, they don't want you to have that much, but they know that you're probably not going to absorb all of it.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Other things will alter it, right? Like I know the amount of fiber that you consume can reduce your absorption. I know like drinking caffeine or consuming coffee can yep. uh, alter it's, your green tea
0: is apparently like the worst um, if you want good absorption. And so you have to be careful with this stuff, but because um, iron, you you know
1: you can get okay. iron poisoning yeah, for sure. Too much, um, but so ferritin so levels, right? Is the blood test that you would look at? Yeah, um, and it's it's actually a, a, quite a wide range. What it's considered normal, okay. ferritin level. Um, that's probably something you could ask your doc about um, if you were concerned about that. They can do a ferritin. Like I think it's a pretty simple yeah. kind of test that they can run.
0: But I think that you know my opinion on this on the iron supplementation stuff is, um, yeah, like your body's not going to adapt if it doesn't have what it needs to mm-hmm. do it, and it would be a real shame if you did your threshold workouts and your body. Like, has plenty of EPO, but just not the precursors to make more red blood cells. Yep. Um, so, you know, it's just something to double check and make sure you're getting the value out of your workouts.
1: Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think it's like many things, right? It's what's, what's the rate-limiting step? What's the rate-limiting factor? Yep. Right? Like, yes, I did this fantastic training, except I didn't recover at all. And so now it's useless, mm-hmm. right? Now, now I'm in the hole. Yeah. Or I did fantastic training, but now I don't have the iron to be able to Make the adaptation my body wants to make, or mm-hmm. or what have
0: you. Yep. So my experience with the altitude tent, I would say uh, it gets a bit stuffy. Um, <laughs> well, you yeah, know, this is more subjective stuff, but um, you know, you're you're in a plastic tent and you have air constantly pumping in. That's um, I think they take percent
1: out of the air. Yeah. So that's, um, that's it. Simulates it right yeah. by changing the. Um, Change the concentration. So the partial is,
0: pressure of oxygen is lower. Uh, the partial concentration
1: level? of oxygen is lower. Yeah. Right. Because you you're at sea level. You're right? you're stuck with the pressure. It's more or less.
0: Yeah. So the way it was explained to me was basically the the, the altitude unit just makes uh, nitrogen, mm-hmm. and then it it pushes the nitrogen into the um, into the tube into your tent. Yep. Um, at, at the rate that you want it to. Yeah. Uh-huh. So other than, um, you, know, you know, it's kind of warm, it's kind of stuffy, you end up peeing. I, I, you know, I didn't make that connection, mm-hmm. um, but you definitely end up going to the bathroom in the morning um, at some point, at least once. And then uh, the only other thing is sometimes you do definitely wake up tired. So I was going to say for you, um, what's the catch of these long-term adaptations? Um, having more EPO production, more red blood cells, this mitochondrial Density, all this stuff sounds like good stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, But there are definitely downsides of um, less restful sleep, which a lot of people downplay. But I think it depends on the evening, or depends on the quality of sleep. It can definitely affect the next day.
1: Sure. And that's definitely something you notice when you first go up to high altitude, you're sleeping. Uh, When you go, you sleep at 10,000 feet. You will notice, like, you you Mm -hmm. may not sleep very well. And the part that has to do with the increased respiration. Your body's okay. trying to compensate for that. Uh, and so, another thing, right? You may have gone on a long flight and you feel kind of tired. It's because of the way they pressurize the cabin. Right? They don't pressurize the mm. sea So, you are like when you're on an airplane, you are at altitude. I've read the exact number. Mm. I want to say it's around 5,000. Don't quote me on that. But it, it is not pressurized to sea uh-huh. level because pressurizing a cabin takes a lot of energy.
0: Yeah. I wonder uh, if that's like to sedate people a little bit.
1: Um. My uh, understanding is energy savings, but yes, possibly. <laughs> well a beneficial side effect.
0: Or um, you know, maybe some people get a little wacky because they are a little low on oxygen or something.
1: Um, you know, there's
0: all these weird incidents that happen on planes.
1: Makes the alcohol work better. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so this is an interesting study, right? Should we uh, measure the uh, red blood cell count of pilots and flight dependents mm. and see if it's, if it's significantly higher than their peers? Who don't yeah. don't fly for a living
0: um well how many uh cyclists are endurance after or how many and how many flight uh, fly a t- <laughs> yeah
1: uh, i mean i
0: would say like, like I mean, none you're no, you, you no. have no consistency to training or anything no i
1: i got, I got my, my one right my, my n equals one i got okay. uh, an ironman triathlete who's a pilot that i used Whoa. to ride with okay. Yeah, but anyhow, I, I don't know, he was, he was pretty good, he was pretty strong,
0: strong age group rider, so hmm. maybe, maybe that was the side effect of his <laughs> job. Yeah, so uh, wrapping up this altitude stuff, I can't really, you know, there isn't much more to share about um, the altitude tent, you know, it's maybe it's just as much, um, do I want this to work as does it work? Make sure you have all the precursors you need to get the stimulus, um, convince your wife that it's okay. I don't have that problem, but uh, you might yeah. if you're looking into getting an altitude tent.
1: Yeah, and I think when you go to altitude, just remember like you know, stay hydrated. That's going to be a key a key feature. And you know if you're into group juice, then maybe worth a, a shot to see <laughs> if that will help your performance. Yeah. Otherwise, just appreciate that one. Everyone is racing at altitude, right? So everybody else is dealing with the the same environment that you are. So yep. Don't like psych yourself out, like, oh, I gotta go to altitude. Yep, so is everybody else. Mm-hmm. So,
0: and that's may,
1: yes, it may like the guy that you're racing against from Park City might have an advantage, but you'll mm-hmm. uh, we'll talk about tactics and you know, there's other, there's other ways to tilt things to your advantage, even when you can't necessarily perform at your expected level.
0: Yep. And so that's like a great transition point for my topic, which is race tactics and uh, specifically for crits and road races and also specifically for a solo rider. Uh, So when I came up in racing in college, I never really had the chance to race on a team. Uh, So all my races up until I was a cat two were all solo races. And uh, you see a lot of people who um, aren't that fit, getting good results. And you have a lot of people who are very fit, not getting good results. And the reason for that is uh, race tactics. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit. I have my notes that I need to pull out.
1: So you know, there are honest races called time trials, and uh, mountain biking is a, <laughs> a pretty good one for that. If you yeah. want to so, eliminate the need for that, you don't, if you don't want to think about that.
0: If you Yeah, if you consider yourself a you know, more athletic than your field, then, uh, you want to seek out time trials or, um, stage races, which are usually determined by, um, the time trial. Mm-hmm. Um, although you don't get upgrade points for time trials, um, you get upgrade points for stage races though. Oh, there you go. Uh, so the, to preface this concept, um, you know, you wake up in the morning, you go to a bike race and you're, your goal is to win the bike race or to podium or to whatever your goal is. I want a top 10. I want, it's not to be, it's not to be the hardest working rider. It's not to be the least hardworking rider. It's to meet your goal. And you know, where I am as a cyclist, I need to get podiums in big races. And that's my goal. And the question is, how do we do that? Not how do I get a good workout today? And I think that's something that a lot of people, especially newer riders miss. Uh, you talk to them after the race and they say, well, at least uh, I worked hard.
1: Yeah, I got burned burn a lot of kilojoules yeah.
0: today. And um, th- that's a bit of a head scratcher sometimes uh, because nobody cares how many kilojoules you burn. Nobody cares that you did a lot of work unless, you know, as a solo rider, nobody cares sure
1: sure if your your job on the team is to yeah set the pace then
0: if you're if your director sportif says uh you know you need to go super hard for the first 20 minutes of this race you better do it um but if you're a solo rider looking for results um it's people only care about the results yep. uh, so that's the first thing to remember uh the second thing is that you have to figure out what kind of rider you are so you know, a lot of people get this wrong and it takes a while to learn and it always changes as you get into new fields. Uh, I was a very good Cat 3 sprinter and I'm not a P12 sprinter. Um, and that's because there are, you know, in the, in the top field there's a lot of people who have dedicated their entire existence within the sport to sprinting. Yeah. Um, and you know, as a Cat 3, you're pretty good, you go to this new field. You, you can't make any inroads. So being adaptable with what type of rider you are, but also being honest. Uh, there are some indicators of what you're good at, such as uh, maybe some results in recent races could give you, you know, looking at the course and saying what type of rider would be good at that course for races that you've done well in. There's also standardized power tests, like 10-second, uh, 15-second power versus 5-minute power, 20-minute power.
1: Kind of looking at those curves and what your yeah. the shape of your curve, right?
0: Yeah, and you can look up um, standardized numbers and see which ones you excel at. And I think there should be a three-hour power uh, point, which, you know, how do you test that? um, Other than in a road race. But I think that's an area that some riders can, you know, they don't realize that that's their strength, is Mm -hmm. being able to ride at moderate
1: intensity for that long. You just kind of keep keep going one foot in front of the other.
0: So that could be, you know, you're, you know, like you do these group rides and you're like, man, I'm always stronger than everyone else at three hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, noticing that in group rides or, hey, I always, you know, I'm always right there in the sprint in the group ride or in the training crit. Um, these, these little things can give you an indication of what kind of rider you are. Um, and then when you know what kind of rider you are, then you can go to the course and you can say, how, how does a rider like me extract value out of this course? how do I put myself in a position to get the result I want based on the course and based on my abilities? Uh, so, you know, if you're looking at a crit, is it kind of a technical crit? Uh, are you technically gifted yourself? If you aren't good at cornering and it's a technical crit, you need to get away from people. So you have enough space to do your work. Uh, so you might be looking at maybe getting away trying to get away early or, um, You know, maybe sometimes it's just not your course. You should be okay with that. Uh, If you're you're a great sprinter, but you're not great at cornering, then maybe the six corner crit isn't for you. That's okay as well. But, uh, you know, say you have a tryout with a team uh, and they're like, okay, just go do whatever you want and we'll watch you and we'll, you know, see if we're impressed. And you're like, I'm not a technical sprinter. Um, You have to figure out some way to... Get value out of every course, or almost what's the reason for doing the race? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, what kind of rider are you? Do, are you, if you're a, a sprinter, you know, you're going to be looking for, um, you know, getting in the right position on the last lap. Before the race, you're going to look at when you want to launch your sprint. Um, these are sort of the pre planning things. If you're maybe a little punchier, like a five minute guy or a two minute guy, you want to figure out how you can get away without people following you. Um, If you're a 20 minute to an hour person, how do I convince the field not to chase me? Uh, These are some of the questions that you have to ask and you have to figure out how you're going to do it. Um, Because I think a lot of, especially newer riders, they never execute. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot of in, in bike racing in general, there's a lot of waiting and you know, should I, should I go now? Probably not. Should I go now? Probably not. And you reach a point where you missed your chance mm-hmm. and it's over. And, you know, for sprinters, you missed your, you know, it's instantaneous. It went, yeah. The window is tiny. For uh, a 20 minute guy, the, wi- the window is just as small because you only have this little window where you can attack and get away alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then from there, it's does fate allow you to, you know, ride away solo? Um, But there are some things that open that window a little bit, and we're going to talk about them some uh, now. So some sort of basic uh, race tactics are, like, for example, in a crit, say it's a more technical crit, um, there's this thing called tailgunning, which is where you sit last wheel in the field. And basically uh, there's this thing called the accordion effect where Uh, every corner the field squishes. So the front people can take the corner without any hesitation. The first three, four, maybe five riders don't have to break. After that, the field is a little wider. You can't take the perfect line. And you have to break a little bit more. You have to make sure you're not going to run into everyone else. So you slow down a bit. And the people behind them have to slow down. The people behind them have to slow down. So by the time you get to the back, you're slowing down dramatically. And then when you get around the corner, you got to get right back up to speed at the back. So you see these people at the back and they they have to brake a lot, they have to accelerate a lot, and it's very fatiguing versus people at the front who have a smoother ride. Mm-hmm. So you see choppier racing, you see more dead legs at the back. But if you're on the very back, what you do is you actually sit up early and then you take the corner with more speed than the people in front of you and you basically accelerate into these people who are slowing down. Mm-hmm. And then as they accelerate you don't have to accelerate, you're already the correct speed. Um, so sitting last wheel, if you're confident that you're not going to get dropped, is a great way to save your legs.
1: And you're confident you're not going to get stuck behind a
0: pileup. Yeah. So there are risks such as getting stuck behind a pileup. There's also issues I've had. I've, I used to tailgun gun a lot. And the big problem with it is if you have a rider in front of you who is not confident with corners, they will clog you up, they will get in your way, they will prevent you from being efficient. And then you just turn into one of the guys at the back who has to do all the work. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there, ha- I ha- there have been riders where I want them to just get dropped because they're about to get dropped and they won't go away and they're making me do extra work. And uh, and then as soon as they get dropped, you can go back to your efficient flowing. And um, Other times in bigger races, you'll have three or four people who all want to tailgum and you sort of have to play nice with them because all four of you are trying to be efficient. Um, so stuff like that is, uh, tail gunning specifically I think is a great tactic if you're not as fit as the field, or if you're you know more of a sprinter type who's trying to save their legs. And you're gonna lean on your technical ability, and you're gonna lean on the fact that you, when it's time to move to the front, you have the capacity to. Um, so, I like the tactic because I I, I'm good at moving through fields. Um, I could, I, you know, I remember specifically I got second by, you know, a tire width in a cat three race where I was last wheel for the entire race, except for the last two laps. Um, and then with two laps to go, I went to third wheel and I stuck third wheel and then, you know, I sprinted for second. And, um, I remember my dad being pretty nervous about it. He was like, why were you sitting so far back? And, um, you know, I guess, you know, the people who come to watch you will be not very entertained by your tactics. But... Right, like,
1: man, he's having a rough day. What's
0: yeah. Going on? <laughs> so, and then you, you come out of nowhere in the last um, couple laps to show yourself. So,
1: it's interesting that you you think about a technical crit that way. It's from a mountain bike background, like, I look at a technical crit and I'm like, All right, I'll just go to the front or, or near the front and I just want to rail every corner. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's like I because I know most times in that situation, I'm probably gonna corner more aggressively. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't even want to bother. I don't like
0: it. So, yeah, that's like the, a huge the risk. Field. You have to learn Um, are people gonna get shelled here? And if, if somebody five wheels in front of you is getting popped and he pulls everyone with him, you now have to bridge. You know, you lost the game. You now have mm-hmm. to bridge five wheels to get around that person to get back to your tactics. So, depending on the course, some technical. You know, technical, but not, you know, dropping three quarters of the field. Sure. Um, and so, you know, every tactic's not for everyone all the time. Uh, another cool one is uh, called the traffic light. And this is for riders who are way too aggressive. Uh, I used to have, um, I had a teammate who, you know, he's the kind of teammate who, you uh, you know, takes caffeine right before the race and uh, does some, you know, like chest hitting and whoo, 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 like let's race bikes. Um, and as soon as the race starts, he's you know, flying, but uh, he's not on the podium. Um, and I told him, and I, I had a few issues like this, and I was able to stamp them out pretty quickly. But um, there's this idea called the traffic light, which uh, basically the first third of the race, red light, stop, don't go you can't do anything uh middle third is yellow so you know maybe cautiously you know uh maybe you can go and then the last third of the race green light you gotta go do it um and keeping this sort of mindset in mind is a it's a good way to keep yourself calm um, and to stay in perspective if you're the type of rider who uh, thinks they can win the race in the first five minutes Uh, so I, i like that as well and Hopefully, you know, it it depends. Sometimes you do get caught with like, oh, that break did go five minutes in and they did stick it. And that stinks that I had my red light on. But most of the time, especially in crits, uh, you're looking at a field sprint or maybe a late move. Um, Even someone who isn't a sprinter who's like a Royer who uh, wants to do a 20-minute effort, it's still 40 minutes into the race, their 20-minute effort. Um, which is just at the edge of your green light section. So that would be the time to, you know, latch on if you think it's a good move.
1: Yeah, I, mean, I think I just learned, like, probability, right? Like, how many crits have, have you done that the person's won in the first five minutes? Like, they've just taken off and left the field and getting like, it's pretty small. Yeah. Right? Like, I would not bet on that. Mm-hmm. And that person probably upgraded, so it's, like, yeah, <laughs> shortly yeah. thereafter, right? Uh,
0: it's, always, it's, it's always, like, the Cat 5 or the Cat 4 who, like, has just has to get their points, and they, like, yeah. bike away from the field, and then they're Cat 3 the next week, and you're like, what? Yep. Yeah. yeah. Um, so another option if you're maybe not a pure sprinter, but you're um, kind of... You can take advantage of, um, maybe we should talk about bridging first because this uses bridging. So bridging is um, basically attacking with a sprint and then holding high power for another 60 seconds or so. Uh, And basically your goal would be with a bridge is to bridge. So um, I remember pulling off uh, second place. There was one rider up the road and my teammate had pulled him. Uh, close, you know, it could be a teammate, it could be anybody, Mm -hmm. um, is trying to chase him back and so maybe he's 100 meters up the road Mm -hmm. and what you do is you attack from a little bit back Mm -hmm. in the field and you catch the front people by surprise and basically you get away alone. And it takes like a minute, a minute and a half to catch this person and then now you're in their slipstream and then you can start to work with them. That that would be a bridge. Mm -hmm. And so the, the goal of bridging is to not take anyone with you. Uh, And the way you do that is you don't attack from the front and you don't telegraph your attack. So you have to make sure they're, you know, the top five riders generally are the ones who are doing the hard work. I would recommend if you're a solo rider, never get in the top five unless it's the last lap. Um, But the people sitting five to ten wheels back are the ones who are in a great position to attack. Um, If you're too far forward, everybody can see you. Mm -hmm. So when you get in your drops, when you... Um, Get out of the saddle. Everyone can watch you, and it's really easy for them to grab your wheel. But if you're five to ten wheels back, it's a little more sloppy, people are next to each other, um, and it's a lot harder for someone to just stick on your wheel. So you want to start five, ten wheels back, and then the other thing is you want to attack when the front is slowing down. Or you have some sort of speed differential that you can overtake the top. So if if you sprint past the front of the field, and you're going a mile or two faster than them, you, you're not going to get away. They're just going to latch on. You have this big tunnel of free air behind you that they can sit in and they'll catch you and you'll end up just dragging the whole field. You do this huge effort to drag the whole field. So you need to attack and be five miles an hour faster, seven miles an hour faster. And the way you do this is you attack when the front slows down and the, it's called mushrooming, which is basically the front slows down and the back sort of curls around. Mm-hmm. And and if you looked at it from the top, it looked like a mushroom. Um, so, This is a tiny window, but there's this tiny window where the front slows down, but you're still going fast. And what you do is you move to the side a little bit and you carry your speed and you sprint as hard as you can. And if you, if you know, you have to practice, but if you can get out of the saddle and accelerate really quickly, those first two seconds need to be really hard. Mm -hmm. Then you can catch the people behind you sitting on your wheel by surprise and you leave them and you're, you're alone. And what I always do when I do this is I sprint for five to seven seconds, mm-hmm. like super snappy sprint. And then I always check. I always look behind because if there's somebody on your wheel, you just sit up right away. Um, and yeah, it was some work, but it was not a minute and a half um, all out effort. So the, it takes a lot of practice, but you want to attack when the field's slowing down. Maybe a good place is like into the bottom of a roller. Because you're going to slow down because uh, you're going uphill, so the momentum's going to change. Mm-hmm. And if you punch it into the roller while they're starting to slow down, you can get that differential. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, on top of um, getting that speed differential, you want to convince them not to chase you. Something my old coach always said was, if you blow past somebody, are they going to say, oh, I got it, I got to go? Or are they going to say, oh, he's gone? Yep. And you need to convince them to say, oh, I missed my chance. And you need them to sit up. And that's how you get away, that's how you get your space.
1: And I think there's some component, right, of, like, lateral distance, right? Like, if you slide right by them, like, your slipstream's right there, right? If you can yep. get a little bit wide, then now they have to actually do some steering, right? And it's like, yep. it's not super easy to get in your slipstream, so that I think that also plays yep. a role. You'll right? see
0: a lot of riders uh, jump, like, across the road. Yep. Um, the other thing about bridging that I like to take advantage of... I'm going to tell you guys all my secrets um attacking on the downwind side of the field is a great way to get that speed differential because you have that vacuum of no crosswind Mm -hmm. um and you'll see in a lot of pro races that the front especially if a team wants to control the front they'll always sit on the downwind side so you have to attack into the headwind uh, which makes it a lot harder to get that um speed differential so uh, in a Cat Three level, even in the local P1,2 races, they don't do this. Um, but you know, this requires you to look at the wind beforehand to have a mental map of the wind. Um, but you'll notice there are some straights, like in a four-corner crit. There's two straights that have a crosswind. Mm-hmm. If you can attack on the downwind side on those crosswind sections, it's
1: really easy to get away. If you, if you do it right, you get from the crosswind into the headwind, yeah. or into the tailwind, right, and you get a little extra push there.
0: Yep, and um, even even without that, if you can attack, and by the time everyone reacts to you, they have to react in the headwind or the tailwind section, They've, you know, it's even tougher for them to react, and that gives you a couple more seconds. Um, so, so this next tactic is basically you bridge with one lap to go or half a lap to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and say you're not a pure sprinter, there's this big muscly dude that you're afraid of, but you still have a pretty good kick, and maybe you can take a few corners quicker than everyone else. You can attack with 45 seconds, a minute left in the race, and basically uh, you'll see the, the top sprinters a little hesitant because they're there for the 15 seconds. Mm-hmm. So maybe they don't react, um, maybe you know you did it so well that you get that difference in speed, Um, basically you're taking advantage of the fact that people can't respond quickly enough. Mm -hmm. If there's only a minute left in the race and you, you know, do an effort and people hesitate for even a few seconds, you're gone and you've won the race. Um, I know a a guy who would do this in the local races in Pennsylvania, like a, a cat one who like, that was his only move was attack with half a lap to go. And by the time you could react to him, he was five bike lengths away. Uh, and then two corners later, you know, it crosses the line first. Um, and you can only make up so much space in a sprint,
1: mm-hmm. you know. And there's a lot of mental, right? Like, if you're in that point in the race and you're a sprinter, you're, you're focused on, like, what do I get to do to get around that last corner? Where do I need to be? And I'm going to launch my sprint from this point right on the road, right where that fire hydrant is or whatever, yeah. right? And then, like, that just, like, fries your brain. It's so like, well, yeah. what do I do now, <laughs> right? And you're just kind of yep. handcuffed you have to you have to make a decision in that instant
0: yeah Yeah. so um you know and and sometimes that that kick is is not the right answer they they weren't able to pull it off so to follow them is a mistake in itself Mm -hmm. and then now your second wheel with half a lap to go and you're completely out of position everyone swarms over the top of you and you've missed your chance so it's a good way to ask questions of others Mm -hmm. um, to bridge like that uh, so the other thing, and this is a good point that you said about sprinters and what where their mind is and what they're focusing on, a lot of sprinters uh, will focus on um, having the wheel on the right side, on the correct side of the rider in front of them. Mm-hmm. So if you know people are going to try and swarm you from the left, you want your wheel on the left side of the rider in front of you mm-hmm. because then the person who's trying to take your wheel has either can't take your wheel or they have to go really far around oh. you. Um, And so the difficulty comes in when people try and take your wheel from both sides. Mm -hmm. You know, then you got to try and act like your wheel is protecting both sides Mm -hmm. to hold your gap. And um, it's really tough. And sometimes you have to get your elbows out, lean into people. But um, the the idea here is um, you want to have a few possibilities in your head at all times. And this is the mistake that the sprinter would make when someone attacks with half a lap to go is... You need to at all times in your head say what if this happens mm-hmm. what if this happens and this is especially good to do as the t- as a tail gunner because tail gunning is pretty I would almost call it like meditative um in that you know it's it's um when you get into the rhythm of okay this is how much I just slowed you know this is how long I don't pedal mm-hmm. you know this is how hard I can take this corner and you just get in this rhythm, and the, and the time ticks by, and your average wattage is 30 watts lower than everyone else. And um, during that time, you need to be thinking, um, okay, what if there's a big attack? Um, what if, like, there's, you know, a crash? Uh, what if there's, um, you know, what if there's like some attacks but nothing really stuck? Like, you have to be thinking about all these possible scenarios and how you're going to react. And this is not true, not just for the tail gunner, but everybody in the race should be doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of times your answer will be just wait. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. That should be, if, if that's not usually your answer, you probably need to look at your race tactics again. Um, should be
1: an answer the first third of the race. Yeah, um, definitely. Most, um, <laughs> most
0: of the time the second third. Yeah. So if, if you're following the traffic light, you have a pretty good pattern for when uh, you should wait and when you shouldn't. But in general, you should probably wait Um And the only time you shouldn't wait is when you start to see the bigger teams putting in tactics or you see uh, maybe a couple of strong riders that are at the top of the race predictor um, starting to make efforts or you have the perfect you, you know, you see this guy who last crit, they did a 20 minute effort and stayed away and you see him on the prowl at the edge of the field, 10 riders back, they're probably going to attack. That would be a good time to get on their wheel and risk following them. Um, and, yeah, it's going to be a bit of an effort to stay on their wheel, but they could uh, you know, lead you to the promised land of a, of a podium or maybe maybe they'll do all the work and you can sprint around them or something.
1: Yeah, and I think the other thing you didn't mention, right, is, like, what if the brake's big enough, right? If you get a big enough brake off the front, then nobody's interested in chasing. Yeah. And how do you – all right, this, this is where the spridging comes in, right? Can yep. you – that big enough break gets away, can you sit in and maybe find an opportunity to bridge where you're not going to bring the rest of the field? Yeah,
0: you? so, you know, if you're tailgunning and you see five people up the road and three of them are on the big teams, you need to get to the front within a lap and you need to be finding an opportunity to bridge, you know, within a half lap. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, fingers crossed they didn't get away so quickly. Um, but, yeah, th- I mean, these are pretty basic uh Pretty basic tactics, but should give you a pretty good uh, baseline. I think the only other thing is, on top of being patient, um, the important thing is saving your energy. And the only reason to save your energy is to use it later. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we said before a little bit. There's a time to go, and when it's time to go, that's your race, and you need to commit to it. Uh, so knowing what your effort is, you know, say it's. Uh, say it's like about 20 minutes to the end of the race and you're not a 20-minute guy or girl, don't attack now. You're not a 20-minute effort person. You um, you you know you have one attack and it needs to be at the right time. Mm-hmm. Um, so remember that you're saving energy to use it for the thing you're good at to make a difference
1: uh, for your race. And I think the other part is like you have to in that moment commit 100% to it, mm-hmm. right? You can't like, well, I'm going to sprint from this spot. And then when that spot comes, like, well, it's not quite, right? Like, yeah. you got to go and commit to it and whatever's going to happen is going to happen. But mm-hmm. trust that you've been the work, but that you've developed the right strategy. And if you didn't, hopefully there's something you learned from that. Right? Like, yeah. oh, yeah, my, my sprint's not as good as I thought it was, yeah. right? Or, gee, those five-minute efforts don't suit me as well as I thought they might relative mm-hmm. to this field.
0: Yeah, and I also think... Um, You don't have to have the perfect strategy. And I I don't like that commentators of pro races say, and he executed it perfectly. I think cycling is who makes the least amount of mistakes. Who who was able to eat when everyone else wasn't Mm -hmm. uh, because there was a big attack everyone had to respond to. Or um, who didn't have to break as much as everyone else in the second to last corner and didn't have to accelerate as hard. Mm -hmm. Um, It's... No plan is going to be perfect, and your plan just has to be a little bit better than everyone else's. So if stuff starts to go a little weird or not quite to plan, uh, you need to be able to adapt quickly, but you also need to be able to just execute. And if you execute with full commitment, you know, it it very well could be your day.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think this is just like you have to give yourself the opportunity to succeed Mm-hmm. Right, and if you're like, oh, well, I think of not go the plans. So I'm just gonna whatever, wait longer. Sometimes you can't, right? Or like, yep. this is this is like not what I want to happen. Well, yeah, like sometimes you just gotta go for it and yeah. and take that opportunity because otherwise the race can leave you behind.
0: Right, and so that's um, back to the like thinking about the possibilities. I remember being in a recent crit where a group went up the road and I missed it, and I was really mad because I wanted a top five. And um, what do you do? Uh, I'm a solo rider. You do not try to ch- try to chase because there's big teams that also missed it, and all you can do is I'm going to save as much energy as possible right now so that I, if this gets pulled back, then I can do something. And it did get pulled back with three laps to go, and I had to put all my ponies in order to try and put a sprint in. Um, and so, always being, you know, always being mentally open to what could happen. Uh, it would have been very easy for me to. Just say, ah, I'll just, you know, I, I could have stopped. Like it really, you know, I was pretty convinced that uh, my race was over. Um, but you know, you should always just be ready for you know the moment to take advantage of it.
1: Well, I mean, you never, you never know, right? I mean, there's a ton of variability in bike racing. Mm-hmm. Uh, just like some, like the dude that you think is really strong ends up having a terrible day, right, and that breakaway falls apart, or somebody has mechanical, bad. or right? I mean, there's there's just so many possibilities. I mean, the way the way I always think about it is I haven't lost the race until somebody's crossed the line in front of me. Hmm. And only at that point am I like, okay, I, I can no longer win today. Until, yeah. until that's happened, until I've, like, until I've witnessed that, then anything's possible, I still have the opportunity for. Whatever, like, whatever it is. Maybe your goal's not winning. Right? Maybe you want the top five. like Whatever, right? Yeah. So until five people cross the line in front of you, yeah. even if there's only two laps left, you... You still have an opportunity to, to succeed mm-hmm. with that, like no matter how unlikely it may seem.
0: Yeah, or and that goes with like winning field sprints if the break gets away, mm-hmm. uh, It's still a fourth place. or still a third place yeah. um, in anybody's yeah. book. So uh, racing's hard. I think the only other suggestion I have is uh, race a lot. Mm-hmm. And uh, some races are, I need to perform today. Some races are, we're going to learn something. And in some of these learning races, that's when you learn how to commit to a sprint. Um, and you cross a line and you know that you cross this invisible line that you have set and you just drop your head and you just go yeah. Um, yeah. and learning how to do that is not you're not gonna learn how to do that in the, in the big race that you want to succeed and you're gonna learn that in uh, training crits and smaller races
1: I think this also goes nicely with a couple episodes ago right you were talking a lot about track riding and how you can mm-hmm. move, use this as a learning opportunity because uh, yep. you just get so many reps, right? So many opportunities to practice that sprint, so many opportunities yep. to practice this, these tactics mm-hmm. in a really concentrated environment. Right? So you can do several yep. races and and anything. So I think that's a...
0: It's also a lot harder to bridge on the track. Because how do you get how do you get across the front without people noticing? You're it's. Um... You know, there's nowhere to hide. There's no wind. There's no yeah. There's no know, shifting gears. Yeah. So you, the only thing you can do is dive down the bank to get speed. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's pretty obvious when someone's riding up the track. Oh, sure. what are they? What are you gonna do next? Um,
1: Take a longer path, of <laughs> yeah. course, get a better workout.
0: I just want to work harder and you know, yeah, and also get out of a draft and all this stuff, right? <laughs> so. Yeah. Like track racing is really good at this stuff. And, uh, I think, you know, like I said at the beginning, um, everybody needs tactics. And I know we've said on previous podcasts, everybody needs to sprint. So you need to, you know, take the time, look at the course ahead of time, go their day of, go get your number, go look at where you want to sprint from. What position do you want to be out of the last corner? If you're gonna do like a late attack or, um, if you're more of a longer type or you want to go with a smaller group, where am I going to attack where I can take five people with me? Um, or, you know, whatever your question is for your type of riding, um, you got to take the time to do it, just like you got to take the time to sprint in training so you learn how to sprint.
1: All right, I have to, I have to ask you this question.
0: Okay. Uh,
1: I'm not going to reveal my answer, but do you ever watch the field before you? Do you observe the race and see how other people are racing?
0: I don't.
1: Okay. I, I tend to just for trends. Like, yes, I know like cat fours and cat fives ride differently than cat ones and cat twos. Mm-hmm. But I think you can start to to see some things sometimes in the course that maybe you you don't see if you just ride by yourself. Right? You can start to see like how, how does the pack how is the pack playing? Like what's happening? How are like how those people like slowing down a ton in that corner? Like, that's interesting, or like, gee, like, wow, that person that took that, you know, inside line got, like, way ahead, that's kind of, like, like hmm. you know, you can't read off of one rider, right, like, one rider be, like, amazing at cornering, and that's why they're getting ahead, but I think if you look at it and, you know, like, watch the, the races go through, like, a corner or a section of the course a few times, and kind of just observe, I think you can get some sort of insights, so, like, how does hmm. that ride, I mean, like, Maybe sometimes it's also like a mountain biking thing too. Like I can like look at a section of trail and like, okay, I think this is going to happen when I get out there. But like also like watching what people's bikes do to yeah. the point where i like, like, okay, that's interesting. Like, uh,
0: so I, I don't, um, I don't look at other races and I don't do, you know, even if I do the times I have looked at other races, I've been almost punished by thinking that, oh, this was a break. These last three races were all breaks. And my field generally um, bucks the trend. Uh, But I think that definitely the first three laps of a crit are um, experiments almost. Mm -hmm. And what if I take the inside line? Like, what if uh, there have been times when I'm like on the left side of the field and I'm just eating wind on this section Mm -hmm. and it's lap two and I'm like, this sucks. And every single lap after that, I'm on the right side of the field on that street. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do a lot more experimenting at the beginning of the race, uh, than looking at other riders. But I think you also have to be careful. Like my, my racing style is more opportunist in that I can do, I'm not afraid of a long break. I'm not afraid of, um, you know, I'm not going to win a field sprint probably, but you know, I'll try. And I think I'm well suited for a reduced field sprint, mm-hmm. um, but I'm also not afraid to bridge. So uh, I want to let the race be active and mm-hmm. I want to be defensive until I you know, bridge or until I mm-hmm. whatever. So I'm more of an opportunist in that respect. So I, um, I don't like to look at other races because they sort of mess with my fluidity almost. Um, you almost have to not know what's going to happen to be prepared for everything. And I've had races where, uh, last year, you know, the field blew up because the crosswind section Mm -hmm. and, you know, there, there were eight, eight different groups on the road. And then the next year, nobody got dropped in the crosswind section, even though the crosswind was the same. And it's because nobody was pushing the pace to blow it up. Everyone Mm -hmm. was waiting for everyone else. And, um, you know, like, my brain going into it is like it's going to explode here and then now i have to recalibrate because you it know didn't it didn't uh what do we do now
1: um and i guess the the flip side of when i observe the race right like if i watch a couple races or a couple laps i can i can see a few of those opportunities right or of, of those possible things right like oh i was interested that race this happened or this mm-hmm. right and in, in this lap this thing happened Okay, like these are all, right, these are part of the thousands of possibilities that could happen in a race. Yep. And maybe like these are a few interesting ones that I maybe hadn't considered mm-hmm. or hadn't like, you know, brought to top of the mind.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. And I think, you know, something like Santa Cruz, which is uh, like up and down and, you know, more than 90 degree turns. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I think that something like that is, is something you have to take a lot more time to look at the technical part of the course Mm -hmm. um, and how do I be efficient versus like a four corner crit you want to maybe want to spend more time who are my opponents where's the wind Mm -hmm. um where do I want to sprint from um so yeah I mean these things are all and uh, you know this is why you should race a lot because maybe in one race you are like really focused on how are you going to take these corners And then when you get in the race, you're like, oh, these corners are easy. Mm -hmm. This is not a big deal. I wasted that prep time. And as you get better, you learn where the prep needs to be for different courses. And uh, I can't give you the answers here, but, you know, you can race and you can learn them yourself. And that's maybe part of the appeal of getting better at bike racing.
1: Yeah, I think it's just level. It's a level of detail as you progress through the rings. I think it goes along with that long-term athlete development, right? It's like... When you start out, it's like everything's new, right? Like just trying to like clip into your pedals and, and get around the course, right? And make sure your tires are inflated. And then as you progress, right, it's, it's more and more fine grained things, right? I can I speak to mountain concern, right? Like, well, do I want like 25 pounds in my tire or do I want 24 today, right? Like, what do I want wet blue on my chain or do I want dry blue on my chain? <laughs> like how do I want to take this switch back? Like all those little things, right? Like you're actually thinking about that level of detail. And the other thing I'll throw in here is like, if you think about like pro level golfers they have little golf, when I look at a green and try to read it for a putt, I'm like, okay, yeah, it's, it's, it's lumpy, right? Like I think it's like relatively downhill to the left. Okay, so I need to just aim to the right and the ball's gonna trace down. If you ask a pro, they're gonna tell you they look at which way the grass is going to determine mm-hmm. what's going to happen right like that's not even in my mind right? i'm like does it is it uphill or like downhill is it left yeah. or right right like that's my level of mm-hmm. of read on it right and like you talk to a friend like well which way is the grass growing which way is the wind blowing like, yeah there's there's just this deeper level mm-hmm. right that's the same thing with bike racing you can start at the very basic and then you can really dig in in deep and know uh, i've talked to really high level mountain bikers trying right? to talk about well you know i want to have my tire like X centimeters from the edge of the trail in this corner, I've raced it. I love, like, that's not in my mind when I think about a corner. Yeah. Uh, like, well, yeah, I want to go outside third, maybe, of the trail I think that corner. I'm not, mm-hmm. like, to the centimeter level of, like, yeah, I want to push it right up to that mm-hmm. that edge.
0: And I think that in, um, in response to that, I would say there are, I notice times when I do the opposite, which is, um, you know, I talked to a teammate afterwards and it's like, of course I take the inside line. I and mean, I always chop people mm-hmm. because you have to to save energy. And uh, they're like, wait, w- like what? You know, in this sort of like it was something that they had to actively think about doing. Mm-hmm. And I think as you get better, you start to just like, of course I do this. Um, sure. You have so many things on autopilot.
1: Um, I, yeah. I, mean, I think that's any, any skill you acquire, right? These things become from the conscious thought then become automatic. Yeah, and you just you just act on them because it's part of the thing you're doing.
0: Yep, and then so here we are back at race your bike more, because mm-hmm. uh, that's the fastest way for this stuff to become that's autonomous. Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely.
0: Um, so yeah, that's what I have on race tactics. Uh, I definitely would say go to a practice race and go pretend like it's the biggest race of your life, um, and try and execute on this plan that you come up with and see what happens.
1: Yeah. And don't be afraid to test. I mean I think train rides sometimes are a good venue for this as well as like these races that aren't as important in your schedule.
0: See like, races.
1: Yeah. Do do an alternative strategy, right? Like on a sprinter. Yeah. Well, shoot, try try attacking with two laps to go, right? Or bridge bridge a gap and try to get into a small breakaway and see what see what happens. Yeah. No. You know, maybe maybe you'll learn something. Maybe maybe you are a good sprinter, but there's you know, there's a different <laughs> skill here that that you're actually quite good at that you never tried because you thought of yourself as a and didn't want to experiment yeah, with that.
0: That's a good point. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, episode nine.
1: We'll be back soon with episode 10.
0: Yeah, keep what do we always say? Rubber side down. <laughs>
1: keep, keep the rubber side down.
0: Yeah, uh, and have a good day.